Can I say I won't give it up? Matt Henderson. Hello, sir. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. You are one of the few uh, bearing gifts, so you're already at the top of the heap, man. Least I could do for having me on the pod, man. <laughs> I appreciate it. Brought you some Maryland whiskey. Ah, uh, and it's tasty. Close to home yeah. for me, or yeah. my original home. Anyway. That's your roots, man. The roots, yeah. In, the, in a bottle. It's delicious. Yeah, man. Um, hit me with your origin story. Origin story. I was born in 1978 on a dark and stormy night. It's a good year. Very good year. Yeah, yeah. Were you 78 as well? Uh, 76. 76, all right. So we're we're close. We're close. (laughs) Um, No, yeah, I was was born and raised in Baltimore. I was there until, uh, you know, I basically left for college. But, um, yeah, I mean, from a musical perspective, you know, I went to an awesome school uh, from a young age. And, you know, I was involved in like a third and fourth grade choir uh, I remember making a dulcimer in like fourth grade, which was pretty Whoa. cool. And that, yeah, there was like dulcimer lessons. We did a whole dulcimer concert at the end of the semester kind of a thing. I mean, that was fourth grade. So that was a, it was a great school, you know, the, the, lots of private schools on the East coast. This was one of those shout out to St. Paul's school. Come on. Um, yeah. So that was kind of the beginning of my interest in music. And then, uh, my folks kind of forced me to take piano lessons. I like to As say when, when I was about eight years old, um, Neither of them were really musical, which is interesting, but I think, I don't know if they saw that I was already interested in it or they just wanted to, you know, to see if I would take to it. But um, I did that for a couple of years, from about eight to about 11, had a great piano teacher, taught me a lot of music theory, Mm -hmm. which was cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I didn't do much for a few years until like my 13th birthday. I really wanted a guitar Mm. for whatever reason. And uh, so I got a guitar for my 13th birthday, found a great guitar teacher. And he ended up, you know, I lived in a very suburban area, so there was like tons of kids kind of within a few blocks of me. And um, yeah, so the, this guitar teacher started with me, and then eventually he kind of started to make his way around the neighborhood. And he'd be like, oh yeah, I'm teaching like three other, you know, of your buddies on, uh, around the block here. Um, and so he would, uh, you know, he'd come to my house and he'd be like, uh, well, here's what I taught your buddy Sean, you know, the Scorpion song or whatever. Here's what I taught your buddy Ryan, you know. He'd be like, what do you want to learn? I was like, I want to learn scales and theory and stuff Whoa. like that. And he was like, okay, let's go. Wow. You know? And so he, he loved that about me. And so he really pushed me to like get deep into guitar music theory. And you know, I learned about modes and stuff like that. I mean, none of it do I really use, right. you know, at least consciously today. It's probably subconsciously. It still for rattles sure. around in there. Yeah. You know? um, but that, I mean, so I did that for a couple of years. And then... After that, you know, he taught me enough that it was like I could pretty much teach myself anything I wanted to learn after that. You know, if I heard a song on the radio, right. I'd be like, all right, I can, I can figure this out, you right. know? Right, um, That kind of took me through high school, basically. I, I sang a bunch in high school, choir, things like that. Yeah. Um, and then college, I got really into uh, like collegiate acapella groups, which is big in the, on the East Coast, Northeast, where I went to, where I went to college. And... Uh, so I sang in a group called the Skidmore Bandersnatchers, wow. um, and through that I got involved in this kind of summertime acapella group uh, called the Hyannis Sound on Cape Cod. Oh, sure. And so for five summers, like uh, you know, ten guys living in one beach house on Cape Cod, and we would earn our living the whole summer just singing, which, no was, which was pretty cool. Yeah, uh, it was, more, it was you know, kind of like a musical fraternity yeah. uh, of sorts, and it's it's still going on. So they're going on. It's, it was founded in 1994, so they're coming up on their. 30th anniversary wow. which is pretty cool so and where were you i mean where were you singing so we would do you know country club kind of gigs in the gotcha. dining rooms and things like that 
um, we would rent out churches. Uh, it was kind of ironic because we're singing like pop music, you know, in churches. But you know, we would sell tickets at the door, and the churches were, you know, were cheap to rent or even free. Sometimes right. they'd be like Thursday night, we're not doing anything at church, just take it, you know. Right. right. So we we kind of by the time I had gotten to the group, it, there was already this kind of following, right? It was yeah. like, oh, the guys are back this summer, you know, and we would kind of start flyerings before like the right. age of like the internet and right, Instagram right. and Facebook, right? So we'd post like flyers around the different, you know, Cape towns <laughs> and people would just come and they would fill up these churches and, and pay five or 10 bucks to come listen to us for like 90 minutes. So it was an awesome way to, to earn a living, you know? Yeah. Uh, and a ton of fun too. Like I said, it was like a fraternity. We all lived in one house. And so we, you know, yeah. we partied our asses off and, sure. you know, no one ever got hurt. Thankfully, I, th- I think back on the, all the crazy shit we right. did and like somehow... Nobody got hurt. You Nobody know? lost an arm. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, 13, that age, um, is, I feel, when you start to develop your kind of musical, personal taste, right? Yeah, You, you kind of come online and, and quite apart from, say, the music that your folks were playing or whatever. Do you have siblings? I have a younger sister. Yeah. Younger sister. Yeah. So, you know, music that your siblings were listening to, you kind of find your thing. And do you remember some of those bands where you're like, holy shit, I need a guitar to be able to replicate that? Yeah. You know, and I, I still have musical ADD, like in what I listen to now, like I go through phases where I'll go from, I don't know, Americana for like a month or two and then back into, you know, pop or rock stuff. So I think even back then, that's kind of how I was. I went through these phases, but I can remember... Uh, right around that time, Appetite for Destruction, Guns oh, yeah. N' Roses, had it on cassette. Oh, totally. Yeah, so yeah. that was like a really foundational album for me. Yeah. Um, I went through a big Led Zeppelin phase in high school. Yes. I, I think some of my buddies were kind of into Zeppelin, and so, mm-hmm. you know, started listening to that and got really into Zeppelin. I remember I had the, the four CD box set, uh-huh. you know, yeah. with the four, you know, the four yes. logos of the band members on that. Right. Wore that thing out. Um, and then in high school... Kind of went. I got really into fish, you know. Yeah, uh, sure. Hoist, Grateful Dead. Yeah, Did you, I remember getting hoist on CD and thinking yeah. this was the coolest shit I'd ever. Yep, heard. I remember a picture of Nectar on CD. Yeah, had the, the orange on the cover. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I mean, from a guitar playing perspective, I think Trey Anastasio from Fish was probably my biggest influence. Yeah. I remember sitting in my room and just you know plugging into my guitar and jamming out to Fish tunes, you know, yeah. all night. Um, yeah. So that was a big uh, musical influence. Um, but I also, I've always really been into singer, songwriter type stuff. Um, my folks played a lot of Beatles, um, Elton John. I remember Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. That was like a two mm. disc set that was kind of on rotation. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I've always kind of, uh, my ear has always gravitated towards singer, songwriter type stuff mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever see The Dead with Jerry? I never did. So yeah. they came to... Uh, RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C. in 1994, just before he died. Right. And I had the opportunity to go, and like one of my greatest regrets in life is right. I didn't I didn't go. Right. And he died like shortly. Next year, yeah, I think, yeah, 95 short, he died. Shortly after that, yep. Yeah, I never I never saw, I kind of, I, I was listening to The Dead around that time, but um, I never, and they would come to Hartford, and they would, you know, they'd play in Boston, obviously, and, and at SPAC, you know, um, and I just, uh, again, same thing. It's just one of those regrets. It's like, I, and Tom Petty, same shit. It's like, fuck, I really wanted to go to that LA forum show or whatever. And whatever, two months later, he's, he's gone. So yeah, there are a number of those bands that, that I was like, 
I, I need to so see dope. Paul. I need to see Paul McCartney before he goes. He was right. just here, and I didn't yeah. go. And now oh. I'm gonna be like, oh, it's just gonna be another one of those. Like it, that's a fucking show, bro. Yeah, I, I saw him a, a number of years ago here, and it's just it's astounding what he can do, what he can still do, and the and this incredible uh, musical legacy. I mean, it, like brought me to tears a number of times. Same with like listening, saw James Taylor, same shit, just fucking bawling. I'm like, I can't, can't like uh, Paul Simon, same shit, just. It's so emotionally, um, it's just so emotionally impactful. And and when you start to think, this motherfucker's been doing this for fifty fucking years. He's at the top of his fucking game, still and, kicking ass, and still kicking ass. And these are fucking hits, man. Like I just want one. I yeah. want one hit <laughs> that in fifty years I play and somebody <laughs> cries. Kids, can you write a hit over forty? <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to the age old question. Yeah. Uh, I've been listening to that too. Yeah. In addition to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so two years, uh, in at Skidmore in, um, upstate New York, then you go back down, um, finish up at the university of Maryland. Indeed. Yeah. In, is that in Baltimore? It's, it's closer to DC actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, right outside DC actually. And gigging at that time or singing, I mean, I'm assuming you would. No, still be singing no i, I kind of i wish we were gigging but uh i moved in with my best friend from high school um who had an apartment you know and was a student there as well who's also a guitar player uh-huh. and we would again put on fish records and the two of us would kind of right. jam or remember we bought a drum machine at one point we would like just play over drum loops the two of us <laughs> and take turns like doing rhythm and solos and stuff like that but spent a lot of hours you know in our apartment you know putting on rock concerts you know <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i bet yeah, it wasn't until so graduated from college, and my best friend and I were going to go to Europe uh, for the for the kind of fall, uh, come back for Christmas type of deal, and we we had both graduated in December of two thousand, so we were going to kind of work for the summer, save some money, head to Europe, nine eleven two thousand one. Oh, wow. Yeah, did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. So I graduated December two thousand. Yeah, and then right. that next fall when we were getting ready to, to go and start buying tickets and stuff. Wow. September 11th happened and my parents were like, please do not go to Europe. Yeah. I'm like, but look at the price of tickets. They're so cheap right oh now. You know? right. Yeah. Um, so what we did instead is we ended up, we were both big skiers, um, grew up skiing. And so we moved to Colorado, Breckenridge, Colorado, and did like a ski bum thing for a year out there. But while we were there, we started, which was really what really became the first band that I was in. Yeah. Uh, it was called Jensen Hill. And we were only out there for like seven or eight months, I think. But we, we started gigging. We you know got found a drummer, another guitar player, bass player, and we, we were doing some shows in the kind of Frisco, Silverthorne, Dillon, Breckenridge kind yeah. of area. Um, and that was like my first band experience. Um, I don't think we were very good in hindsight. We, you know, the, the, our bass player was re- a really talented guy, actually, who I just kind of reconnected with recently. Oh, nice. Um, but yeah, we were still just trying to figure out how to, you know, how to be in a band, you right, know. Right. Um, but it was it was a great experience. Were yeah. you were you writing stuff, or was it mainly just covers? And we, we were, we were. Uh, there was another kind of singer songwriter guitar <laughs> player that we sort of hooked up with out there, and uh, yeah, and all three, you know, all three of the guitar players were kind of writing songs and. That was when I first really tried to dedicate myself to writing. You know, I hadn't really been a writer up to that point. I I had books of poetry and things like that, sure. but you know, hadn't really been like I need to write songs. You know, yeah. but now that we had this band, it was like okay, I need to write songs. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so we did. I, I I was always really into recording 
so I would do a lot of like demos and things like that at that time for the band. What and, were you um, working on? A Tascam? Um, we had a Tascam. Four, four tracks. Yeah, the cassette, right? You get four <laughs> tracks, two on the top and two on the bottom. Yep. We had one of those. And then eventually I upgraded to uh, like a, a, a DAW, you know, yeah. Cubase. I don't know if that's even still a thing yeah, anymore, yeah, yeah. but it's kind of it was basically like an early version of Pro Tools. Sort was that of, like ADAT stuff? Uh, no, Cubase was like a, like a DAW, you know, like okay. you record right to your hard drive. Okay. Um, yeah, so I kind of skipped the ADAT thing. Went from Tascam to <laughs> to computer, you right, know. Right. Yeah, um, but yeah, so that was that was my first band experience, um, and then I we ended up moving back to Baltimore, and uh, I didn't do anything for for a while, for like a year and a half, two years. I just was sort of like trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. What did you graduate with? But... Uh, oh, the, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, uh, my degree was in philosophy of oh, all things. Shit. Yeah. Okay. Yep, so I, I, I thought a lot in college <laughs> about shit. Don't talk to me, I'm thinking. Shh, don't talk. <laughs> a lot of arguments and things. Uh, I, I thought I wanted to go to law school, actually, and so I was like kind of dragging my feet on applying to law school, and um, it was right around that time that I had sent some demos to a family friend who had moved from Baltimore to Arizona and was working with a singer-songwriter out here, um, and he's like, hey, we're going to be coming through Baltimore. You should meet this guy, Ryan Sims, that I've been working with. Um, and so they came through town, and he had heard this kind of demo track, that original song that I had, had written. And uh, he's like, we should get together when I'm in town, and, and uh, let's, let's try to write a tune, you know? So we sat down in my parents' basement. Uh, this was probably, this was summer of 2001, I think. Or no, 2003, I guess it would have been. Yeah, summer 2003. And uh, yeah, we wrote this song in about 30 minutes. It just kind of flowed out. It was like, oh, that, that felt really good, you know? Yeah. And I had never really tried to write with anybody else. And, and still to this day, like, I feel like when I write, I mostly write alone. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll bounce ideas off, you know, my, mm. my, my buddies and my bandmates. But, um, but for the most part, I, um, yeah, I write alone. But so, I don't know, it was this great collaborative experience. And yeah. he's like, you should move to Arizona. I was like, what do you mean, move to Arizona? He's like, I already got a house you can live in. Just... Pack your shit. Let's go. You know, he's like, we're, we're, we got three more weeks on this little tour that we're doing up the East Coast, and then we're all headed back to Arizona. You should meet us out there. I was like, well, I mean, I don't have anything to lose. Why right, not? You know? Right, right. So, uh, you know, hey, mom, uh, packing my shit and I'm moving to Arizona. She's like, uh, okay, good good luck, good I guess. Luck. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I never turned back. I've been here 20 years now. No shit. Yeah. So 2003-ish, 2004? Yep, 2003. It was actually Labor Day weekend, 2003, that I rolled into town here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, drove cross country by myself, stopped a few places to do some sightseeing on my own. And then... Uh, yeah, I'd never been to Arizona. Didn't even really know what it looked like. Right. I mean, you know, so oh, there's, a, there's a Grand Canyon there. You know, I've right. heard, heard it's great. You know, right. so I, I, I knew very little about uh, about Arizona. But I remember coming down the 17 from Flagstaff, like through the pine trees, and then down into the valley for the first time. And I was like, wow, this is a pretty magical place. I, I, my experience is so similar to that. And and in fact, I arrived about a month later, uh, October, middle of October, 2003. And I remember that same drive coming down for the first time thinking, I know absolutely nothing about Arizona. First of all, Flagstaff looks like it could be Colorado, looks like it could be Vermont. I mean, you know, and then you, and then you, as you say, you come down and you're like, where the fuck am I? This does not look like anything I've ever seen before. And then coming down 17 and you start to see the lights of, of Phoenix, you're like, this is a huge fucking city. Like what am I getting into? But that that I've you know, 
it, I still think about that moment. Yeah. You know, that, that, that first moment of, all right, I know nothing about this place. It doesn't look like anything I've ever seen before, but let's go. Yeah. You know? I, I remember like getting the book of CDs out. I was like, I need something majestic to listen to right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I landed on Peter Gabriel is, is what I ended up with. <laughs> That's awesome. I need something majestic. <laughs> Flipping through the CD book, you <laughs> right, know, right, swerving right. across the road, trying to find the right CD. Yeah, that's pretty much how, how it went down. Um, <laughs> so yeah. that was the beginning of Easton Ash. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Ryan Sims and I and, and Jeff Joas was already kind of playing with him in another band. And so it was the three of us. And then we, we actually took out a Craigslist ad to try to find a bass player. Oh. And we ended up with a guy named GK Mack and... We had actually had a few bass players through the years. Um, Nate Marshall was with us a long time. And then yeah. towards the end of the band, uh, Ethan Newman was with us. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the beginning. That was the beginning of Easton Ash. Yeah. I remember hearing about you guys kind of early on. Um, I, I don't think I ever saw you guys live, but I do remember hearing about the band. And there was this like, this kind of like lore about Easton Ash. And, and I... Uh, I mean, I don't know how much you want to talk about that particular project, but just can you give me kind of, I mean, obviously Ryan Sims was kind of the lead singer, yeah. main songwriter, and he, I guess, put everyone in this house, and you were based up in Cave Creek, right? Yeah, yeah. He had, uh, well, really, uh, Ryan was working with, with um this gentleman who was our manager at the time, and I'm not going to get into him because there was some lawsuits that went down. I, I can kind of tell some of those stories. I don't want to get sued though. So, Jesus. Um, but yeah, Ryan and and this manager had kind of procured this beautiful house on like five acres up in Cave Creek, so we could play all hours of the day and night mm -hmm. and not bother anybody, which was great because we basically starting a band and we spent six weeks kind of putting a set together and rehearsing. And Ryan kind of had a a short book of some originals at that time. Um, I had a song or two that I had kind of brought to the project, but we were learning a lot of covers as well to try mm -hmm. to flesh out like a, a full night's worth of music. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I mean, it was, a, it was a, a great time. It was also a little bit like a musical fraternity. You know, you had all mm -hmm. these guys living under one roof. Um, you know, Jeff ended up moving in with us. And so, yeah, it got to the point where all of the band members were living under one roof. So we mm -hmm. could rehearse whenever we wanted, really. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, the, the lore, it's funny. I mean, I, I think our manager at the time, he did do a good job of like marketing and mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, PR, that kind of, I think mm -hmm. that was his, his strong suit. So he did, I think, kind of build up a buzz. Uh, but it's funny that you say that because I think he was the guy who gave me, he's like, here's your competition. This band called $10 Outfit. Listen to this CD. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I swear to you. Jesus. I swear to you. And I remember like looking at the CD. It wasn't even a burn copy. It was like a real copy with the, you know, with the artwork and stuff. <laughs> and I remember looking at it and I was like holding it in my hands and I felt like uh, the dude from American Psycho. I was like, look at the tasteful thickness of it. <laughs> What font did you use? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I listened to that record and I was like, damn, these guys are really good. Yeah, like, we got to get better, you know? That's funny. But yeah, I mean, we, we, our vibe was a little bit different than yours. But yeah. I, I mean, I, I, like I said, I've always loved singer-songwriter type stuff. And that was, you know, kind of the $10 outfit vibe. It's still kind yeah. of your vibe, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's hilarious and slightly embarrassing. Uh, it was a great record. Yeah, you guys did, might have done more. Did you do more than one, or was it just the one? We did um, East Meets West. I, that, that was the one. That was the one, yeah. yeah. And then we, we had like four or five live records, and then we, were, then we did a, um, an EP 
called the Sholo Sessions. And I think the idea was to have a matching EP, which never happened because at that point, you know, band members were kind of doing other things. I was starting the Sweet Remains at that time, and mm-hmm. and and so, uh, yeah. We, but we were to, we were active and playing, and and I was writing for a ten dollar outfit at the same time that I was writing for the Sweet Remains and and the Voce project at that time too. So there was a bunch of shit happening, um, and that was a fun band, you know. That and that band, um, you know, I'm one of the reasons for moving to to Arizona for me was to not play music. I, I, I wanted a break or whatever, but immediately moving here is an inspiring event. And I meet Caleb, you know, and we hit it off and, and, uh, I was like, I, I do have some of, you know, I got a couple tunes. He's like, well, you know, he just got out of a band, you know, that whole fucking thing. The timing was right. And the players were right. And yeah, we had, we had a ball and, and looking back on that experience, it was very, formative you know mm-hmm. but um who was it you bass and drums in that band uh it was caleb was on drums and peter venti was on piano that's right and yeah. he would kick some some low so and i i just wanted it to sound different i wanted it to feel different i wanted it to really focus on the song uh that was really my first time trying to be a singer songwriter and have the song be first you know versus a you know, some of the other projects uh, in the 90s were more about jamming or more about, you know, odd time signatures. And, you know, I wanted this to really feature the song. So I didn't want a bunch of shit weighing it down. I wanted it to be really light and open. Yeah. <clears throat> no, it was great. It oh, was great. Yeah. That's funny. Um, so you guys were playing around town. I feel like, were you doing some touring too? Yeah, we we did, we did, and and I think that was probably the best. You know what I learned being in that band was like how to be in a band, how to tour. We ended up kind of parting ways with our manager, and I was like working the books and like paying our rent and doing all the stuff, and so kind of learning how to be kind of like the business manager of a band, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, we toured. We had the manager and myself had you know ties to the East Coast, so we would kind of go from Arizona, sort of out through the Midwest, play a few shows in the Midwest, and then play around the east coast and we would stay out there for like four or six weeks and then we would kind of work our way back um ended up getting some shows in reno and through reno uh this club owner uh from alaska heard us and started flying us out to alaska in the summer times which was rad and uh yeah we would go out there for like four to six weeks and we would play tuesday night through saturday night so we'd have sunday and monday off and they would always line up some kind of trip for us cool so they'd be like this weekend we're taking or it's our weekend Sunday Monday we're taking you halibut fishing that was one weekend and then one of the bartenders uh, had a cabin kind of you know down on a river uh, you know hour and a half or so from from Anchorage where we were and he's like we're gonna go sand fly I'm gonna teach you how to fly fish for salmon you know in the Kenai River wow caught a silver salmon first time out never used a fly rod it was like one of the most proudest <laughs> moments of my life I am all that is man you know it was uh, it was pretty great. Um, but no, so we did that a couple summers and, um, yeah, uh, totaled a, a, a van in the middle of Kansas. That was a story. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How did you do that? So uh, we had this beautiful conversion van that had like TVs in it and you could plug in your Xbox and oh, play yeah. video games. And we were riding in style, had like the two captain's chairs and they had like a big bench in the back that would fold down into a bed so you could actually get some sleep. And, wow. and we towed this trailer behind it and, uh, we carried just 
probably way too much gear, just yeah. way too much shit. And it was, it was overloaded really. Um, and so we had had a couple of close calls because the trailer was so heavy where it would start to kind of like uh, push the van a little bit around, yeah. around the highway. And we, you know, whoa, shit and regain control of it. Speed up, speed up, you know, and like get that van to kind of like, or the, the trailer right. to kind of come back in line behind the van. <clears throat> so we were going down kind of a, a, a long and steep hill in Kansas on, I think it was, I-70, yeah, it was. It was I-70 going through Emporia, Kansas. And it was broad daylight, dry roads, but this trailer just started to sway and it wouldn't stop. Uh. And so it kind of broke loose and flipped on its side and then it was kind of sort of dragging us down the highway. <laughs> and I'm asleep in the back. Luckily, I had like a seatbelt on, um, you know, across my waist, even though I'm laying down. And I just... I remember feeling the van kind of like rocking hard and I was like, Oh God, what's about to happen here? And then I hear glass breaking and I'm like covered in glass and I sit up and I'm like, what the hell is happening? And it's at that point that we basically like fishtailed 360 in the middle of the highway. The glass was, we, the side of the van had hit like the Jersey wall in the middle, like the divider. And it sort of cracked the back window onto me. Um, Thankfully, we came to a, a stop. No one was hurt, oh miraculously, God. but the trailer was on its side. And uh, I actually, so we're supposed to be at this gig that night in Moline, Illinois. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're parked on the, you know, we're stopped in the middle of the highway, basically blocking three out of the four lanes, probably. And this state trooper pulls up, slams the door. He's like, what the fuck did you do to my highway? And we're like, oh, this is, this is <laughs> not going to be good. Well. <laughs> this is not going to be good. Uh, so I actually have a, they, they, they towed the, you know, they put the trailer on a flatbed and towed it to some like salvage yard and we unloaded it all on its side. And I actually have a picture of the band standing in the empty trailer on its side. Uh, we rented a U-Haul, made it to the gig on time and played the gig that night. Like a Club bunch, owner was like, I did not expect you to be here. Like a bunch of fucking pros. Pros, man. man. Pros. Nothing can fucking stop this band. Yeah. We are performing this evening. Yeah. It was a, it was a terrible day, but uh, luckily, like I said, no one was injured. The biggest casualty was Ryan Sims Martin smashed bits. Oh. Yeah. It was in like a hard case, but not like a flight case. And I right. think when it went on its side, like some road cases just yeah. crunched it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But RIP. PA system still worked. I mean, we traveled with the full PA. Everything still worked. Wow. So, yeah, got lucky for sure. Lucky. So the story goes is sponsored by Gensler Amplification. A couple years ago, I was introduced to their Acoustic Array Pro amplifier. And the first thing that I was really impressed with was the balanced sound. It has two inputs both with instrument and mic input so as a singer songwriter uh, you can amplify your vocals and your guitar no problem it has uh, some eq has some built-in effects the second thing i noticed about the acoustic array pro was how light it was now as a touring uh, performing musician you're always trying to shave pounds off the load in and this thing I couldn't believe how much volume it could have and and still be so light Gensleramplification.com. go check that out how did you um, stay kind of creative um, during the pandemic how did how did that moment in time affect you on that level yeah um 
yeah, I'm sure it was hard, hard for everybody, obviously. Um, I, <laughs> oddly enough, because there, you know, there was so much like downtime and yeah. nothing to do that I sort of turned to like writing a little bit and trying to be creative. And, uh, actually Jay Allen was like, Hey, there's this, uh, this Facebook group that I, I'm a, a part of right now. And it's like a songwriters group and they mm -hmm. throw everybody, th you know, writes a line uh, and posts it on the, on the group and they throw them all in a hat and they draw it out and everybody has to write a song with that line. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did that for, so I think every, you had like a two week time frame, right? Mm -hmm. It's like they would draw it on like a Monday night and like two weeks the following, you know, following two Mondays, you'd have to uh, basically submit your song back to the Facebook page. And, there's only like six or seven people and I sort of knew them all through like one degree of separation. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like I was throwing it out to total strangers, but right. some of them were, you know, I had never met in person. Um, I only lasted about like three cycles with that <laughs> after about six <laughs> weeks. I was like, I can't do this. It feels like homework, you know, yeah. but it did get me back into kind of like a writing thing. And I've never been what I would call a prolific writer. Like for me, it's like, I have to, find the time to do it. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of ideas, you know, and if I don't write them down or try to like at least document them right away, they're, they're gone, yeah. you know? And I feel like there, there's periods where either I'm tuning them out or just not, you know, not opening myself up to them, mm -hmm. you know, but mm -hmm. some, but after a while, like if I haven't written something for a while, I do feel like it's like a, a tapping, you know, mm -hmm. at, at my back, you know, it's like, Hey, this is another idea. Hey, this is, another, you know, and then yeah. I have to, I'm like, all right, I need to like spend some time trying to write some things and work on things. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I came out of COVID with like three or four songs that, you know, are still probably half finished, you know, but, yeah. but ideas that I was like, yeah. these, are, these are good ideas. I need, to, I need to work on them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I had, at that time, like, so the band I play with now, JTM3, we had really started kind of like in the 2018, 2019 timeframe. So there was still, I think, like a lot of like honeymoon phase and excitement about that. So we yeah. were trying to figure out what we could do to sort of keep that momentum going. And so we did do like some live streams and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that helped as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a it was a hard time. Um, luckily, I mean, I know a lot of full time musicians that were like, "What the hell am I going to do? Yeah. There's no gigs to be had anywhere." I mean, I have a day job that's carried me through that time. Luckily, um, but yeah, I mean, it was. It was rough. I remember tuning into some of your live streams. I'm like, yeah. I'm going to try to donate to you know yeah. all my musician buddies at least to help them out a little bit, things right. like that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a it's kind of a weird time. It sort of reminded me of I mean, growing up in the Northeast, you probably remember like snow days. Although oh, yeah. in Massachusetts, they probably didn't have nearly as many snow days as we did in Baltimore. Um, oh, we had some snow days. Did you? Well, where oh, yeah. they would cancel school, you know? Oh, kind of, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So you did have those. I figured they're like, that's ah, Massachusetts. You're going to school in the snow, kid. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, in Baltimore, like you get a, a sprinkling of snow on the ground, they'd be like, "School's closed." To be like, "Awesome," you know. So at, at first, like the first like week or two, sort of felt like that. I was like, "Oh, it's like a snow day," you know. Like yeah. everybody's home. This is kind of fun. And then it was like, "Wait, my kids are not going to school. Like, right. what? What do I do with them?" <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, but I mean, I I did try to keep myself busy writing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I I love the concept of that you know, the, the draw the line and everyone writes a song kind of helps to keep you accountable, you know, mm -hmm. and, and creating. But I think I'm with you. I think after a couple of weeks, I'd be like, I don't, that's not how I typically write. Yeah. So it would feel like work or something when I like to think that writing songs is like a personal cathartic thing, you mm -hmm. know? Um, but 
I remember, I remember, I think Jay even said, Hey, you want to be a part of this thing? And I'm like, Hmm, again, I love the concept, but I don't, I don't think it's the right process yeah. for me, you know? Yeah. It was fun for a spell, but then you get like a lyric that's like, she bleeds and it's like, Oh man, I don't want to write about that. You know? Like, <laughs> Yeah. I don't know why I I think that's so funny. (laughs) I'm not sure that was exactly the line, but it was something like that. Uh, Now I have to write a song, She Bleeds. Um, That's Uh, a coming of age story. Yeah, right. Um, So so let's talk about JTM3. Let's talk about... um, uh, for the record, which is your song, which came out on Friday, April fifteenth. Yep. Yeah. If it was something that I said that I'll soon forget, I hope you'll understand. Beg my pardon. Uh, we went to STEM recording in, uh, in the Paradise Valley area. A guy named Curtis Crippy. I don't know if you know Curtis or not. I don't. He's he's awesome. He uh, he's got a beautiful studio kind of attached to his house. Instead of a casita, he built this awesome multi-room studio, control room, drum room, focal booth. Um, yeah, it's really cool. He's got tons of gear, guitars, mm-hmm. and amps, and a beautiful board, and um, and he's really fast to work with, which mm-hmm. is great. You know, mm-hmm. um, so we did a bunch of nights there. We recorded six songs. Um, we're actually still finalizing the sixth one. Um, and we've kind of, it's an EP basically, but instead of, I, th- I kind of think the way music is released has changed, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, what's the point in saving up six songs and dropping an EP? So we're kind of dribbling them all out as yeah. singles, you know, and yep. eventually it becomes an EP kind of right. thing. So this is, I guess, the third or fourth one out of the six we've done. Um Mixed by Tony Nunez, who works at uh, the Conservatory for Recording Arts in mm-hmm. Tempe. Um, so yeah, it's it's been great. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of a sad song. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm happily married, but it sounds like a breakup song. <laughs> but it's actually it's actually not. I watched this movie and I can't even remember the name of it, but it was this. Uh, this guy has like PTSD and he has like a teenage daughter and they're kind of estranged and. You know, they're trying, she's trying to like bring him back, you know, into the fold and they just like can't make it work. And so the, the line of the song is for the record, it was you that did the leaving and mm-hmm. sort of like from the daughter's perspective. And mm-hmm. I don't typically write like topical things like that. Usually I write stuff that's more personal to me, but I don't know. I saw this movie and I was like, I got an idea for a song. And I like sat down and cranked it out in like 30 minutes, you mm-hmm. know, and I was mm-hmm. like, all right, I'm, I'm proud of that. I like it. You nice. Know? Yeah, it's it's hard for me. I think sometimes it's just like to be like it's done, it's finished, like it's good enough, you know. Right. I don't know. I feel like 
I, I know what I want to sound like, but I'm never going to sound that way, you know? Uh-huh. So, it, you know, I don't know. I, I think every musician agonizes, or every songwriter agonizes a little bit over their, their process, their song, you know? Yeah. So, but yeah. that one, that one just felt good. It was like open and shut and done. And I like it, you know? That's a great feeling. Yeah. That's one of the best feelings. Yeah. Yep. Was that a, was that a co-write or was that, is that, that's yours? No, that was just a late night kind of by myself kind of a thing. And then I brought it to Jay and Tony and they kind of, Help me work it up. And, you know, Tony's always got great production ideas being, you know, the percussionist and the drummer in the band and, you know, starting and stopping and kind of how mm-hmm. to come in and, and out of sections. And so, yeah, so we worked on it a little bit and then, yeah, went to Curtis's place and recorded it. Who Who's on bass on that? Um, we had, so I'm trying to remember, we did, we had both Brendan McBride on yep. some tracks and we had Nate Marshall on some tracks as well, who formerly of Easton Ash. Um, and I think... I think that one was Brendan, actually. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm trying to remember. We kind of spent so many nights in the studio. Um, right. I believe that was Brendan on that one. Yeah. Well, it sounds great. Yeah, thanks. Ted Belladin on the keys. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. Oh, Teddy. Yep. Some organ in the background. Yeah. Yep. yep. And Jay's doing the slide. Jay's doing the slide. Yep. Tony played the full kit in, at Curtis's place. Curtis is a drummer by trade, so Tony mm. likes going there because he's mm-hmm. got this beautiful kit in a beautiful drum room, and it's just always mic'd up and ready to go. Yeah. And like, it, it sounds great. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what does the future look like for JTM3? So, I uh, hope we've got a big show coming up. Uh, I don't know if this podcast will be out or not, but check out uh, Santan Gardens April 30th if, if it is out. Uh, so, we're, it's, it's not a record release, but it's kind of our first big show in a while. Um, I don't know. We did a big MIM show last summer. I know mm. you guys, Sweet Remains, have a MIM show coming up. We, we may try to weasel our way back into, into the MIM again this summer if we, oh, if yeah. we can make that work. Um, so, I don't know. I think now that we're sort of closing the book on this record it's like time to start another one you know right. it's like let's write some new songs you know mm-hmm. i i don't want to like get stagnant you know um i want to keep writing keep recording you know kind of keep pushing content right i think that's the world right. we live in it's right. like you got to stay relevant you got to stay fresh you know creating new content so yeah i think that's kind of what we're what we're focused on um certainly the that that release plan the the single you know one a month or whatever one every six weeks Helps with that, right? Yep. As you say, um, people consume music differently now. Do you need to wait to have 10 songs to drop a record, or should you just be, as you say, slowly releasing content so you can stay relevant and have something to promote? Because once you have promoted a record for a month, people are like, all right, well, what have you done for me this month? Right, yeah. It's like, well, I just gave you 10 of those. They're like, nah, well, we're over that. Shit, you know. Yeah, how do you stay at the top of people's feeds, right? right. Yeah, that's that's basically. I mean, that's it, right? Yeah. It's like, how do we beat this fucking algorithm? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, I mean, it's 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 frustrating, but but also malleable. Like we we do retain a little bit of control about our content now, which is cool, you know. Um, but uh, I think that that's the way to do it, you know. Once one a month or six weeks, and and keep people engaged, you know, as best you can. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think this summer we're going to try to do like a writing retreat, you know, somewhere up north out of the heat and mm. uh, try to come up with a few new tracks that we can record and probably release in the fall. That's awesome. Yeah. And and busy doing shows this summer? Uh, we'll see. I mean, so yeah, as you know, Phoenix kind of tends to cool off, no pun intended, um, <laughs> from a gig perspective. But um, I don't know. We've been playing like crazy. Yeah. I've got like 15 shows this month, which is a lot for me. Um, yeah. And Well, uh, actually, yeah. how do you juggle... A, a full-time job, a family, three kids, a wife, 
and a busy band. I mean, literally, how do you do it? Do you sleep? Four chickens, three dogs. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a delicate balance, I will say that, you know. Um, but, yeah, no, I don't know. You just, you just make it work, you know. Um, shout out to my wife, Brittany. She's a saint, you know. <laughs> Love you, babe. Uh, <laughs> Gotta have her on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. She's like, you're playing how many shows at the end of April? <laughs> Literally, I think I have like seven nights in a row. It's like I'm not going to be home for a single night. She's oh, like, God. oh, this is going to be fun for me. <laughs> um, you know, I got, I got a good woman. That, that helps. But, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and luckily I've, I've always worked from home, even before COVID. I used to travel a lot more uh, and that made it harder actually to kind of mm-hmm. do some gigs midweek, right? Because I was like, well, I might be gone, but I might not. But right. so I guess for me, one of the blessings of COVID is like, there's, I just I haven't traveled in two and a half years and it doesn't really look like I'm going to have to go back to a lot of traveling in the near term, maybe further down the road. But for now, there's just, there's no sign of that so it's great i'm like yeah book as many shows as you can fellas you yeah. know yeah 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 and you were you were going back and forth to chicago a lot was that was that the thing yeah so um so after easton ash kind of sh- i i when i turned 30 i told myself like if i was gonna like re- I, I, I was playing music full-time with easton ash you know we did, i did that for eight years um and then when I turned 30, I was like, I, I told myself I was going to reevaluate my my life. You know, I'm mm-hmm. going to enjoy my 20s. I'm going to play as much music as I can and then reevaluate when I hit 30. And, and literally, like, the day I hit 30, I was like, all right, I think I need to get a day job. <laughs> mm. You know, uh, I had just around that time met Brit, you know. Um, and so I was like, yeah, you know, like, maybe it's time to settle down. And and I did, you know, I, I played a little bit longer with Easton Ash, but then I started working and, and kind of got recruited away to a company that was headquartered in Chicago. And so I moved out there for a few years. Didn't literally, I did not pick up a guitar for two years, Whoa. which seems like insanity to me now because it's, I mean, I feel like it's what keeps me sane a lot of the time, you know, but yeah. I, we had our first daughter on the way. Harper's now 10. Um, wow. so that was 10 years ago. Um, so I don't know, like I just, I was ready for a break, you mm-hmm. know, and um, had been playing, yeah, like five or six nights a week for eight years. Wow. And uh, yeah, so I just kind of put it away and I, I was, wasn't sure I would ever pick it back up. But after a while I started to, you know, hear the calling again or right. really miss it, you know. Um, and after about two years in Chicago, we moved back to Arizona and then, yeah, I don't know, people started calling like, hey, you're back in town. You want to yeah. play a gig? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, all right, yeah, well, I haven't. I don't have any calluses anymore. Like I gotta, <laughs> gotta work up to that. Right, like right. I remember, like s- like sitting in with some people or playing some gigs and being like, "Oh, my hands are killing me right now. I feel like such a wuss, man. What happened? You know, like what happened to me? Do I still remember how to play this instrument? You know, um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. What, 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 uh, that wasn't your original question, though. Uh, I don't even. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember where we're going with that. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah. So I started, you know, getting back into the Phoenix music scene, and then yeah, it wasn't long after that. Jay and I were gigging, and then that morphed itself into JTM3 eventually, about 2018, 2019, yeah. I feel like a lot of um, a lot of the charm to that band is the vocal harmony. And maybe you can talk about, um, I mean, you, you kind of came up singing in those groups. You understand harmony on a level, um, as does, as do Jay and Tony. Um but talk to me maybe for a minute about how, I mean, not all trios have three-part harmony, obviously. Um, how important was that for you to incorporate that? Or did it just come kind of organically? I mean, because Tony is a great harmony singer too. So 
Did it just kind of happen or was it an intentional thing? I would say it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, vocal harmony is important to me, having you know come up through the acapella thing, as you had said. Um, but Jay sings, Tony sings. Tony has a really good ear for picking out harmonies. And, and I sing. So it, it, in that sense, it was a little bit natural. It's like there were already songs where if I wasn't going to sing a harmony part, Tony was already on it. Right. So then it'd be like, well, I'll just add a third harmony part in, you know? And, right. and then it was like, wow, we sound really good with these three-part harmonies. And then it was like, it became very intentional after that. It's yeah. like anywhere where we can put three-part harmony right. in and still be tasteful about it. It's like, we're going to do it, you know? Right. And I, I always felt like that sets great bands apart from mm-hmm. good bands. You know, mm-hmm. Tip of the Hat to Sweet Remains, you guys have beautiful three-part harmonies. I love the way you guys arrange songs as well from Thanks. a harmony perspective. Um, but yeah, I you know, it became very intentional. It's like, uh-huh. we know we can do this. Now we have to like do it really well, you yeah. know, and sometimes too much, you know, but I don't know. I, I just love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, I've, I guess it can be overused, you know, as a technique or whatever, but it is so satisfying too to hear, you know, like a like a word for word stacked harmony. I don't know what it is. I mean, I also sang in acapella groups uh, in in grade school and in high school, and there's something powerful, especially when I think you know. To your point, three part harmony makes a good band great. What makes a great band incredible is when those harmonies uh, that when you when the voices mesh in a way that is otherworldly, it almost sounds like one voice. One voice, yeah. you know. Yep. That makes that's another. That's the next rung up. It's like the the tonality of the harmonies are such that you're like, what the fuck is this? like? You can't tell it apart, mm-hmm. and it's hard to pick apart. Mm-hmm. It's almost, you know, it's too fucking close to to discern these different parts. So, no, I'm 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 with you, man. It 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 can be overdone, but when it's really working, it's fucking powerful shit. Yeah. It, it draws people in, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, you play, played some gigs around town where you're, you know, just background music, you know, every, right. every musician's done these kind of gigs, but you know, it's like, I don't know, let's play something with three part harmony. And then you, just get, you see people walk by and they're like, wait, hang, hang on a minute. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden they, it, it just, it, you know, draws people in. It's like, yeah. wow, that's, that it's powerful. Like you said, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a short one. Yeah. I need another splash. Me too. So I need it immediately. Let's do it. (laughs) I'm here to tell you about Rare Disease Renegades. Rare Disease Renegades is a nonprofit. It's a 501c3 founded by my friends Billy and Michelle. It's a charity created to accelerate science. In 2020, Billy and Michelle's son, Caffrey, was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is a rare disease caused by a genetic mutation that renders muscles unable to recover from activity. It starts with the legs, then all limbs, and ultimately impacts the lungs and heart. There's no cure for this life-limiting disease. Caffrey is going to be 12 this May, and we need science to move a bit faster for him. I hope that you take a moment to check out rarediseaserenegades.org and find a way to support this worthy cause. What was your first concert experience? Wow. Um, I think it was, it was like Aerosmith and Skid Row together or something. Uh, yeah. Let's go rock and roll. 
<laughs> I think I was in like seventh grade. And uh, yeah, I went with like my friend and his mom took us kind of a thing. And it was in an arena. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that was it. First concert experience. Love it. Seventh what year grade. was that? I guess it would have to have been... Uh, Mid-80s, late-80s? Let's see. I guess well, seventh grade, what are you... Yeah, no, probably early 90s, like 90, 91 maybe. Yeah. That's, I think that math works. 92 even. I graduated yeah. in 96. Yeah, somewhere in there. Something like Late that. Late 80s, early 90s. Ter- yeah. Terrible at math. Yeah. <laughs> um, it seems crazy though to think like seventh grade. I, I My kids have been to so many concerts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Music festivals, things like that. We're just like, we drag them out, you know? Are they, are they getting into music? They all have an interest like my son sings his ass off in the car yeah <laughs> you know yeah. he's like Ed Sheeran leave that Ed Sheeran song he's five you know he's like she kids whatever no, I'm not even singing Ed Sheeran but like he, he, he does it well you know he, but he gets into it he's like yeah. he really you know he's like closes his eyes and he sings from the soul you know like so I mean jury's still out on him but I think he has an interest um my 10 year old Harper I just started teaching her kind of some fundamentals on the piano yeah and she's really into it, but you know, I'm trying to push her, and it's like, Dad, I'm like, all right, fine, you need a piano teacher, then, you know, like right. if, if I, if you won't do it with me, somebody else, you know, you'll do it with somebody else. So, yeah, yeah. and then um, I don't know, my middle Lennon jury's still out on her too. She's kind of more the athlete, I think, you know. Uh-huh. Um, she's little and strong. She does gymnastics, but I don't know, maybe she'll get into it. But yeah, my two out of the three so far have definitely shown an interest in music. Yeah. How has uh, being a father? Uh, affected your songwriting? Do you find that you're taking some of those experiences and putting them in song or is it kind of separate? No, I mean, it's, yeah, it occupies my mind, you know, a lot of the time. So I always, <laughs> it's always giving, my hard, giving me a hard time. She's like, you never wrote a song about me. Oh, and it's like, yeah. baby, every song I write is for you. you know? That's a good answer. <laughs> that is a... Um, so I don't know. I have a hard time writing about things that are personal to me. So, I mean, I have a lot of ideas of things like that, you know, but I don't know, like I I tend to write in a more kind of obtuse kind of a way, you know, like in, in, you know, words and poetry and things that are not obvious, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's like, Mm -hmm. I have a hard time. I don't know. It's like, I have a hard time talking about my feelings, you know, like, I think that's what it is now, you know, it's like, (laughs) I don't want want to talk about my feelings in front of everybody, but that's, I mean, that's kind of what songwriting is to some extent, you know? So yes, I I get all these ideas about my kids and they certainly inspire me to write songs. And and someday I, I, you know, I endeavor to write a song for my wife and a song for each kid, you know, but it's, it's hard, you know, it's definitely really hard. Especially being in a band with Jay Allen, who seems to write about all of that all the time. Yeah. It comes easy to him. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. He's a very prolific writer. It's just nice to have those type of people in your band. Yeah. Takes a little bit of the heat off. Yeah, it does. And it, it, I mean, it it sort of pushes me. I'm like, God, he's writing all these songs. I got to write some more songs, you know? Yeah. 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 Why did you text me? Oh, the the night about <laughs> so, sorry, sorry about my late night text the other day. <laughs> <clears throat> so, so for your listeners, I uh, texted Brian the other night. It was it's probably two o'clock in the morning after a gig or whatever, and I was like, "Man, this new Bonnie Raitt song reminds me of a Brian Chartrand song," which is something I never thought would come out of my mouth. <laughs> and then I'm, you know, maybe a week later, I'm kind of on the socials and this other guy that i listen to a lot jonah smith is great he's like oh, i know jonah smith yeah he's like bonnie raid's my, my new one of my songs is on bonnie raid's new album and i'm like well that's interesting so i you know i, I sort of click in and start reading about bonnie raid's new album it's all covers uh-huh. and the one that reminded me of you it, it turns out to be one of your favorite bands yeah. the brothers landris 
and now it all co- makes sense to me. <laughs> but it, I mean, isn't that pretty crazy though that I heard a Bonnie Raitt song and somehow it reminded me of you, yeah. only to find out that it's like one of your favorite bands. Right. So I don't right. know. Yeah, there's something to that, man. I'm telling you. There is. It's like band. Radar Love, man. <laughs> <laughs> is there a band out there currently where you're like, I want my record to sound like that? Oh yeah. There's there's probably several. Um, and it's interesting. It's like when I sometimes I get inspired to write when I'm listening to those other records. Yes. It like puts me in a place, yeah. gives me a feeling, and I'm like, I need to turn this off and write my own stuff right now. Yeah. Um, I my like one of the top of my list right now is a guy named Fancy Haygood. Okay. Check him out. Yeah. Um, he has this record that has I don't even know how to describe the sound. Um, he is he is a gay man from the South, um, and so. The subject matter of his record is a lot about that, mm-hmm. which I don't identify with at all. But <laughs> but I know it's a good record because every song moves me. You know, yeah. it's like I just I love the way it sounds. I love the way huh. it's arranged. Um, it's not particularly rife with vocal harmony. There definitely is some there, but there, you know, there's just a quality and a sound to that record. And it's his first full length album. He's a guy that. He's a Nashville guy, but he's written like pop songs with like Megan Trainer, and he's just oh, wow. a really he's like a Swiss Army knife of a guy. But his record has this kind of southern soulful quality to it. Uh-huh. I sent him an Instagram message. I was like, "How did you get that sound on your record?" He and he just sent me back. He's like, uh, "I think it was called Battle Studios." He's like, "Battle Studios, East, East Nashville." And he's like, "Just go check out their webpage. All their gear is on there." Oh no shit! And I was like, "All right, well that's a good tip." But I, I'm sure it had something to do with the producer, or the engineer yeah. that he was working with, and just his own style of writing. But so yeah, fancy hey, good. Check him out. It's a I different will. kind of a record, but I, I think you'd really like it. Um, other big influences of mine right now: Rustin Kelly. There's a lot of I don't harmony. Know that either. Really? Oh, yeah. Check out Rustin Kelly. R U S T O N. Uh, his sister tours with him just as a vocalist, like a backup vocalist. So a lot of vocal harmony there. His dad was on tour with him for a while as a pedal steel player. Uh-huh. So it was kind of like a family band. Yeah. Um, Ray LaMontagne was a you know big influence 10 or 15 years ago. Um, yeah, that first record floored me. Yeah. I, I remember driving around Baltimore, and uh, there was a great college radio station, and Trouble came on the radio. And I was like, whoa, what, the, yeah. what is this? Yeah. You know? And I immediately went and found that album and listened to it hundreds of times. Yeah. Do you have other examples of that moment? I, I can think of a couple other moments, same shit. You put the CD in the car, you start to go somewhere. And I, I remember, I can tell you two examples of me having to pull the car over. Mm-hmm. Do you have any of those? This may be more obvious, you know, well, at least to, to my musician friends. D- David Gray's White Ladder was one like that for me, yeah. where I was like, wow. And that was really cool because he was kind of bringing like a singer songwriter vibe with almost like an electronic yeah. kind of a vibe. And it was this weird mixture that just worked really well. Yeah. Um, so that was one. Um, the first time I heard Rustin Kelly's first album, uh, the album's called Mockingbird, I believe. Uh, or no, it's called. Uh, Shit, I can't remember now. First album, he's, he's only got two, uh, but the, the first one was just blew my hair back, and I, yeah. you know, I just I heard one track, and I immediately went and you know listened to the whole thing, and just sat there and just put it on. I was like, wow, yeah. this is it's like a just a sonic you know masterpiece in, in my mind. And yeah. again, you know, not probably not a high budget record, but just high quality songwriting. And I think he had good people. You know, there was a producer named Jared Kay that I don't know too much about that I think gave a certain coolness to that record as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
trying to think of some other moments like that. I feel, I feel like it happens to me every few years where mm. I hear a record, maybe to a lesser extent, Silk Sonic, you know, oh, that, sure. that new, uh, thing. Yeah. it's a totally different kind of vibe, right? right? But it's like this throwback to, to 70s, you know, Bootsy Collins is all over the record. Yeah. Um, Nigel, what's his face from? Nigel uh, Rogers. Yes, Nigel Rogers, you know, so again, great people, but, um, you know, a certain... Uh, aesthetic to the record, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Any others come to mind? I can tell you two. One uh, was the first time I heard the first song off of A Rush of Blood to the Head, Coldplay. Ooh, good one. Politic. Yeah. I was in my car. I was leaving my parents' house. I had just gotten the CD for Christmas. My mother's like, A Rush of Blood to the Head? Like, thinking it's, you know, I don't know, feeling uncomfortable about the album title. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I put it in and I, you know, I get whatever, 50 feet from my door and the opening of Politic. I'm like, what the fuck is, yeah, what the hell is going to, and then it, you know, and then it breaks and, and I'm, I pulled the fucking car over. I was like, I have to pay attention. What I, is this? I yeah. can't just have this playing in the background. This is going to fuck me up. Um, the guitars dripping in reverb. I yeah. love that, like ethereal yes. quality. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. That whole that whole record just still to this day fucking floors me. Yeah. Um, and the next one, um, same shit. Um, a buddy said, "Hey, you need to check out Death Cab for Cutie," and it was Transatlanticism. Same shit. That that opening. This is the new. You know, this is the new year. Bah, nah. I was like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah. Pull the car over. All right, fuck. Now I got to listen to this over and over. Um, those are the two kind of in more. Re oh, well, first time I heard Amos Lee's record, uh, that that first record um, and that first tune off of that first record. I was like, what the fuck is like this? Come on. Yeah. Sat down, had to listen to it. You know, how um, about uh, the Benz by Radiohead? That was another one for me where I was like, whoa, these guys are doing something way different than anybody else is right now. Well, and, and what's interesting about that record to me was I did not enjoy Pablo Honey. I don't, I don't own that record. I didn't like Creep. I thought it was it was um, kind of ang like angular just to be angular. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't like that Johnny Greenwood guitar shit, you know. And then, so fast forward to the Benz and I hear High and Dry. And I'm like, whoa, this is not... I'm, I'm waiting for Johnny Greenwood to whatever, you know, right. and fuck this great song up. Yeah. But it never happened. And I'm like, oh, maybe I need to listen to this record. Yeah. You know, and still to this day, I mean, I play that record literally, you know, front to back with, with the, with, I put a band together with a bunch of great guys and, and we go cut, we go play the bands front to back. It still to this day stands up. It's a great rock and roll record. And totally changed my mind about Radiohead. Yeah. Turns out that happens with every record of theirs. Yeah. It totally changes your mind about Radiohead. Yeah. I got another one for you. If you ever want to do another record front to back, Jeff Buckley. Oh, God. Yeah. How great is that? Album? Oh, my God. That, that, that's another one that every song just blew my hair back. Yes. Like this, again, he's writing songs in a, in a way that was totally his own, mm -hmm. you know, very different than anything, you know, that was out at that time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Love that. I was, I was, I'm a huge Jeff Buckley fan, and I remember where I was when I heard Last Goodbye. Uh, it was 1994 or five, somewhere in there. I, I, all I know, I was living in Germany. I did a, a PG year after high school, and I'm the last one. I was living with a family, 
dear, uh, dear friends. Um, and they had all gone to bed and I'm sitting watching MTV as a young American boy should, uh, in, in Germany. And I see the video for last goodbye. And this is obviously pre-internet. So I write it down. I wait till it comes up. I don't know, you know, the little title card at the end, Jeff Buckley, last goodbye. Okay. I make a note of it, write it down. It's not until I get home, like six or eight months later, I'm in my local record shop, thumbing, trying to, trying to find this motherfucker. Got it. Got the record, went home. And, and you know, that album completely changed how I sang. Because mm-hmm. now, now I wanted to sound like Jeff Buckley. It's got that beautiful falsetto, kind of like... Yeah, and that's... Sh- you know, shrieking to a certain extent. Yeah, that's, yeah but he could yeah. do it all, you know. Yeah. And, I, and I took from that, I took the use of falsetto I, I, I could do it I, I, I didn't know how I you know in rock bands I didn't know how you would employ that skill mm-hmm. but this is again around this time where I'm starting to think about songs first and, and singer songwriters and obviously big James Taylor fan but this is not that so how do I do both of these things and yeah fucking the grace it totally blew my mind such a great album I actually somewhere I have a live recording of an acapella group I was in doing la- the last goodbye really yeah <laughs> I wasn't singing the lead on it because I, I can't get up in those high registers like he does in that song but yeah. uh, no it's a good recording I'll have to dig it up and send it to you please do yeah. I found out years later Buckley died on my birthday really yeah May 29th whoa yeah that was such a, a tragic I think that makes him day. all the more mysterious and his music all the more you know yeah. sought after I mean there's a finite amount of it you know yeah super finite and you know Napster was coming kind of online at that time and I was just ripping all these like live in Tokyo and these random mm-hmm. random um, live performances and some studio shit and, and I just have CDs and CDs of this rip stuff I don't know you know, but I, I I went I went in fucking full balls on that one. Yep, down the rabbit hole, and and uh, still a huge fan to this day. Um, and and again, I I kind of equate his career to what Radioheads is in that you know Grace sounds very different um, to some of the stuff he was doing later in his career. Um, my sweetheart the drunk you know that shit mm-hmm. is very different you know mm-hmm. and I, I i'm i'm bummed i think humanity is bummed that we don't get to go on that journey mm-hmm. with him yeah you know yeah it seemed like he was just taking off and becoming yeah. kind of his own yeah thing yeah tragic tragic, tragic. yeah well. well homie i appreciate you you coming down and bringing gifts and sharing your tune with us and your and your stories and Thanks for having me, man. Cheers, then. Thanks Cheers, for the man. rye. It's delicious. You're very welcome. We will see you soon. Bye bye. So the story goes.